of Saturday, breaking cycles, we rebels. Stuff of Saturday, uplift with love. Stuff of Saturday, breaking cycles, we rebels. Welcome to Stuff Love Saturday, where loving ourselves is an act of rebellion. This is your host, Dr. Anissa Shomo, everyone's favorite family medicine physician. And today I have a really special guest, Dr. Jamie Evans. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Dr. Shomo. Uh, my name is Jamie Evans. I am a physician that is uh, double board certified in family medicine and psychiatry and potentially a little bit insane for considering another <laughs> board certification in obesity medicine, um, which I'm working on this year. Uh, I actually work as a medical director with a national telebehavioral health company, also do part-time urgent care. I'm really excited to be here to talk with you today, Dr. Okay, awesome. Yes. <clears throat> so my husband is one of those family medicine psychiatry unicorns. Yes. Um, because here in Cincinnati, we have a, a residency for that, the first residency for family medicine psychiatry double board. And that's where we met mm -hmm. here in Cincinnati, where I keep yes. trying to get you to move back to, but you refuse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. I'm keeping it on the table for you. <laughs> All right, but I'm really great. I really love that I was able to meet you and we were able to be in residency together because we mm -hmm. have really great conversations. We did. And so we do in, in the present. Still do, correct. <laughs> <laughs> you, are, you are one of my greatest friends and I appreciate you. Yes, I appreciate <laughs> you as well. And so that's why I wanted to bring you here today because we've had a lot of conversations about, you know, this idea of obesity and, um, you know, just how the conversations that we have as doctors about weight and weight management and how that kind of goes into the culture of like the aesthetic of a certain weight mm -hmm. and the, you know, how that appears, like people want to look a certain way. Um, people, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people go about that as far as trying to look a certain way. But for me, it's hard sometimes for me to kind of follow those conversations because for me, my weight is really about being able to function and yes. having the conversations with patients about your body is functioning well or not functioning well and what kind of things can we change about just your lifestyle that could help you function better yes, um, and yes, feel better. Yes. So what kind of conversations do you have with your patient or maybe just tell me a little bit like why you got interested in obesity medicine? So one of the reasons that I'm personally interested in obesity medicine and wanting to pursue this additional board certification is because I have struggled throughout my entire lifetime um, with body image as well as um, my weight and fluctuations in my weight throughout my lifetime. And so this is something that is very near and dear to me and I wanna be able to help other people, um, especially knowing some of the things that I've experienced. Right. And so when we were you know, having just a conversation mm -hmm. as friends, you were telling me a story about like how you became aware of your weight as a teenager. And I feel like a lot, that's kind of what happens to a lot of women. Yes. We go through our puberty, our hormones are changing, our body's changing. And sometimes those conversations can make or break how you feel about yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was definitely a central event in my life. Uh, you know, I grew up in the Bronx in New York state and yeah. every year we had a fitness challenge um, in gym and I, I'm not a very athletic person in general, yeah. <laughs> whatever way that I was at, I've never been a very athletic person. Even though but, you are one of my black girls run homies, we do run races, but yes, I have. Yes, yes, yes. I've gotten into walk running, uh, but yes, I, I was not very athletic 
topic at all. And so one of the things that the kids used to do, because they would take your, you know, body measurements and say, oh, well, how much do you weigh? Well, how much do you weigh? And they're like, oh, well, you, there was one person, there were two of us who were maybe of higher weight when we were in the seventh and eighth grade. And it was just like, oh, well, you're, you're bigger than me. Um, and this is where all of this started. Um, and even a little bit earlier, you know, hearing kids, you know, talking about, oh, you look a little bit, you know, you're kind of fat. And, and that was yeah. not the cool thing. That was not the cool thing to be, you know? And so it definitely, and they, they were saying it to be mean generally, yeah. kind of like bullying behavior. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately. Um, I did remember one time hearing um, from some of my cousin's friends. We, you know, I was just kind of walking by them in the hallway. I went to the store and was going upstairs and I could hear them saying, she's really nice, but she's like kind of ugly, you know, and they were really oh, no. referencing my weight. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. wow. Heavy impacts. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and that's the thing. It's like so much of that, those conversations were can really make or break people's self-confidence. Like mm -hmm. 11th, I mean, not 11th grade, but uh, middle school, I feel like I was probably more impacted by a lot of those comments in middle school than I was in high school. I felt like in right. high school, I didn't, I didn't care as much and I still don't care. But <laughs> in middle school, I was really having a, a hard time in my life. So I felt like a lot of that commentary like, cause that's, cause that's the thing. Like a lot of times people don't put that context. You don't know what that person's going through. It's going through. Exactly. Exactly. So then you add that onto, you know, like you're already kind of feeling like my life is falling apart. And then people, you know, will say different things about, about you or your appearance that kind of piles onto those, to those feelings of like worthlessness or just mm -hmm. negative feelings that, that we can have as teenagers, as we're going through a lot with our hormones and our emotions and our mood changes and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, how did it, how did those, how did those comments affect you and your mood and how you felt about yourself? Uh, Long-term it caused, it caused a lot of anxiety for me um, mm -hmm. and self-consciousness, you know, so even going into high school, even though proportionally my weight was okay. Um, and even back when people were talking about it as being problematic, um, it really had me focus on, focused on, the wrong thing. I, I don't weigh enough. I was focused on a number and a scale. Um, I do remember that my vision of my body was so warped that uh, between my, uh, because I had it coming from home too, uh, you know, my parents who were just trying to support me and they're like, well, let's get you a gym membership. And I literally lost about 25 pounds in a summer and oh, went wow. back to, yeah, <laughs> went back to school. And I remember, you know, someone saying, Hey, Jamie, have you lost weight? It was my math teacher, Ms. Grushaw. And she's like, and I'm like, no, I don't think I have. And I literally cognitively knew on the scale that I had dropped about 25 pounds yeah. and it literally changed my body, but I wasn't even able to accept where I was. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And for a lot of people, it can be a process. And for me, that's kind of like, that's what is hard is we have to figure out how to have those conversations with ourselves in a, in a healthy way. Of, yes. I want my body to feel healthy. I want me. And I mean, so I already did my session with uh, Annalisa, who talks a lot about this when she teaches in communications about mm -hmm. just this idea of healthy can be very subjective, right? Yes. So for some people, they may say, well, if I starve myself and lose weight, then I can look healthy, then I can look healthy. Right. But, but is that behavior actually healthy? Are Correct. you feeling, are you feeling well? So for me, I like to try to focus on just how you feel. 
and your body functioning because sometimes you might feel okay, but your blood pressure could be high or you could have diabetes, but there are plenty of people who are overweight who don't have high blood pressure or diabetes. So for me, it's all about like functioning, having your body function and do the things that you want it to do. Yes, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought up, you know, even from a personal standpoint and then working professionally as a psychiatrist, when we're seeing adolescents who are coming in, you know, to the emergency room setting, or if you're seeing them in the hospitals, because I do consult and liaison work. So essentially just seeing people in emergency rooms and and, um, if they're admitted to the hospital. And, you know, you'll find that adolescents, as you're talking to them and they're talking about body image issues, they potentially are at risk for, if they're not already, have developing an eating disorder, you know, whether it be something like anorexia or binge eating disorder or bulimia. Um, So it definitely can long-term cause lots of issues in addition to depression and anxiety. Right. Because I don't know that people understand, you know, when we talk about anorexia or bulimia, Bulimia is generally, um, is that kind of binge, binge purge cycle where people are vomiting. So that can cause a lot of issues with your body not functioning because of electrolyte Mm -hmm. problems like potassium being low, chloride being low. And it's the same thing with anorexia where people will starve themselves or they'll take a lot of laxatives or exercise a lot to the point where their body is also not functioning in the way they're supposed to with electrolyte problems, vitamin deficiencies, all that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. as physicians, we see the consequences of, you know, people trying to look a certain way, having actual um, consequences to their health. Yes. I think more than other people really, other people really realize that there are consequences to a lot of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Also, um, I was doing some reading um, about just really approaching, um, you know, body image and weight, you know, um, in terms of a, you know, psychiatric versus non-psychiatric. Oh, the big thing in family medicine in the last couple of years has been really working through um, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, you know, bringing that information up and really evaluating it, assessing for childhood trauma um, in your basic you know, histories with your patients to assess how that may impact the, you know, people. And so you have some folks that have severe trauma histories, um, that have suffered from obesity and some who haven't. Um, and so I think it's also important to, you know, include those additional things that you're talking about before, you know, us going through a lot and how those additional things are impacting you know, besides, you know, the direct, you know, weight comments or, you know, abnormal eating behaviors. And that's one of the things I say, I mean, one of the things that people often do when they see somebody and they're different is comment on that, but they really should ask you if you're doing okay. Like if somebody, if you lost 25 pounds in the summer, you could have, it could have been because you were stressed out and you were eating and people often should just ask you if you're doing okay. So anytime anybody's weight changes, instead of saying, hey, did you lose weight? Or, hey, have you gained weight? You should ask, are you doing okay? Like, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? Because a lot of people are dealing with a lot of things. And the first thing that people see is your appearance. Exactly. And they comment on that. But they should, they should really dig deeper to ask you more about, like, what is it you're going through? Absolutely. I remember, um, and unfortunately, with the loss of last year, actually about just over mm-hmm. a year ago with Chadwick Boseman. Uh, people, he had lost a significant amount of weight and people 
were making assumptions about what was going on with him. Um, mm-hmm. Now, of course, he did keep it very quiet and had his right to do that um, as he was suffering from um, a cancer, unfortunately, um, and succumbed to that. But, you know, we just have no understanding sometimes right. about what the things that are going on in people's lives. So I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where it's it's like we we have a lack of understanding and empathy, I feel, at times in our culture in America in general. But I feel like we also have an obsession with our appearance. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that I don't think I've said yet on this podcast is when I go to Haiti, like people just, they don't really comment on each other's appearance too much. People just look however they look and they don't have a lot of mirrors. So it's not really like a big topic of conversation. Right. That it's just more like people trying to survive and live. And I feel like in America, for whatever reason, we're very vain and put so much emphasis on our appearance. And it's the first thing you talk about when you see somebody when I feel like it can be damaging for a lot of people. It can make them feel worse. And it also, even if it doesn't make them feel worse, it's just not helpful. You know, (laughs) it's just like, it's not helpful for whatever they're going through. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and obviously like most of the time people just tolerate it and are like, oh, thank you or, oh, whatever. But I think that we should think about going beyond that you know what I mean like there are times when you might say thank you when you're really just like you know want to say f you you know (laughs) exactly exactly like why are you even commenting on me and my appearance (laughs) right and I think that's kind of like this whole idea of a body positive movement Mm -hmm. um because so um Annalisa when we talked I can't remember if it was um during the podcast or after we Mm -hmm. we were having a conversation after the fact she talked about like how they've sort of moved away from saying body positive because it's been Mm -hmm. co-opted by white women like thin white women (laughs) and now and now they're talking more about body neutral because they're they're trying to that's honestly what is what what the goal is for Mm -hmm. it not to be a topic of conversation like okay i'm alive i have a body i'm grateful for my body can we please talk about something else um and i know I feel like a lot of that, some of that has come as feedback to us as physicians of like, can we talk about something other than my weight when I come to your appointments? And I have never really been a person who's been really big on talking about people's weight because I've, I grew up like, you know, growing up in the Midwest, everybody's all different sizes. So for me, it's not like, I've never been like BMI obsessed. I've never been like, you have to be a certain weight to be, right. you know, if you want to get rid of your diabetes, you got to get down to this weight. Or if you want to get rid of your hypertension, you got to get down to this weight. And what's kind of funny about me is I specialize in taking care of older adults. And honestly, there's been studies that show that being a little bit overweight as you get in your 60s and 70s is actually a good thing because if you get hospitalized, you know, with a pneumonia and lose 15 pounds, you have mm-hmm. 15 pounds to lose, you know? So, exactly. or, you know, you have 15 pounds that your body isn't having a struggle with because I spent a lot of time working with patients in their 70s about gaining weight because people don't have a good appetite when they get older it's part of a physiologic change in our body where you're not where you don't have as much of a um, thirst or um, eating kind of reflex so Mm -hmm. they have to remember to eat they have to weigh themselves so it's kind of one of those things for me having that perspective of you know often when people are getting into their 60s and still obsessing over 20 pounds I'm like, don't even worry about it. Like, 
<laughs> because in your 70s, we're going to be having a different conversation. And I've noticed how the medical students will look at me when I do this, if they're with me, mm-hmm. um, just because, because it's just a whole different, it's just a whole different conversation. Like, I know, I know that you have to have that balance. Um, like, there is, there are a lot of underweight people, just like there are a lot of overweight people, but it's really just about your body functioning and not obsessing over 15 pounds, you know? Exactly. And that is truly a paradigm shift. People, I mean, even from when we were trained, you know, the first thing you're trained on, you know, we don't get in medical school and perhaps this has changed a bit now, but we don't get, you know, taught nutrition, basic nutrition. I learned this out of residency, outside of residency, talking to my patients when I was working as a family doctor about, Hey, you went to McDonald's today. So let's talk about this. Let's look at the menu. Let's look at the calories. Let's look at the the salt content. That's what I was focused on. Or someone, and as you had mentioned um, earlier, as we were talking, you know, people are bringing it up to you. Your patients are usually coming to you asking about, you know, their weight and their weight loss. But even as a family doc, and I did that for about four and a half years out of residency. I don't remember, you know, having a situation where it's like, okay, let's talk about losing your weight. We're talking about the chronic medical conditions right. and the things you can do in order to address those. And, right. you know, weight loss might be a part of comprehensive lifestyle changes, but, you know, that's not necessarily where you just focus. It's like, what are you eating? Right. And that's generally what the conversations that I have, because for me, it's all about the behaviors. It's not about, Mm -hmm. it's not about the body appearance, because Mm -hmm. I think that for a lot of people, they feel like, oh, well, if I looked a certain way, or if I get down to this weight, my diabetes and my high blood pressure will be gone. But that's not necessarily true. So I don't like, so number one, it can be hard to lose 20 pounds. Number two, and so I don't want people to feel like a failure if they don't get down to 20 pounds. Right. But I, you know, that 20 pounds down, so I try to build them up for success and say, well, let's talk about how we can change your eating. Let's talk about how we can change your exercise and just really focus on those healthy behaviors. Because like I'm saying, like people do a lot of unhealthy things to lose weight too, like starve themselves, like vomit, mm-hmm. like laxatives, all types of stuff. So I just don't, I, I think that I try to be very conscious and aware of that and try to just focus more the conversation on healthy behaviors and function because I had a I had a patient recently who was in her 70s who gained like five pounds and she said that her knees were bothering her and she could feel that like you know so if you know that your body is functioning with five extra exactly. pounds on you and you want to say oh, I need to lose those five pounds and you know her I think that that extra five pounds maybe kicked her from o- overweight to obese um so you know it's one of those things of just having that awareness of how how that feels on you and and knowing yes. that okay well I know that I haven't been eating like I'm supposed to. So I need to probably change up my eating and try to drop this five pounds. And that's a different conversation, you know? Absolutely. Body awareness. I like that. Just having body awareness. You know, I notice when I shift a couple of pounds, oh, my lower back hurts a little bit. Oop, I heard a twinge in my knee. You know, I mean, it really is, it's reasonable. And even taking that to the eating patterns. Um, and there are some foods that I personally know that if I have something that's fried or if, you know, even with experiencing like severe acid reflux, that that causes a lot of inflammation in the body and I'm having joint issues and things like that. So it's giving an impetus to avoid certain things versus saying, okay, well, you know, (laughs) I just need to lose weight, you know, more so even just focusing on the foods. Right. And I do that a lot too. Like I don't eat a lot of fried foods either because I don't like the way I feel. 
-hmm. when I eat a lot of fried foods and I also try to avoid eating a lot of sugar because I do feel sluggish when I eat a lot of sugar. Exactly. Yeah. That that body awareness and that, I mean, there's a term in medicine called biofeedback of listening to your body and getting feedback from your body, but you have to, you have, there's a certain level of like, you know, in tuned. And the other part of it is like, most people just eat the same thing. And so they kind of develop a, they kind of lose that, that loop of if I just eat the same thing and then eventually your body's like, whatever, you're not listening to me and it stops talking to you. So it's just, it can take a, it can be a skill that may need some uh, fine tuning. Exactly. But it, it is, it is, if you can, you know, work on it, and a lot of people do that, like with the whole, I mean, Tabitha Brown talked about it in her book about how she was feeling terrible. And she went on a, a vegan challenge with her husband for 30 days. And she said she felt so great that she never ate any more meat ever again or, or mm-hmm. there. Right. And she said her husband went back to eating it because he was like, that was cool, but I feel fine regardless. You know, <laughs> but she's just like, she said she was not okay. She was like, I was not okay. And I felt a lot better eating a vegan diet. So I stayed that. So I think for some people, if, you know, if you don't have that biofeedback going, it can sometimes take a, you know, a little bit of a drastic change. Like I know sometimes people do that whole 30 or, or different things to just kind of mm-hmm. reset. Right. Um, because for me, I don't really believe in diets. I don't believe in like diet culture of like, right. You know, right. That creates like a lot of yo-yoing, but I think that it can be nice to experiment with different things of trying to mm-hmm. break habits. Cause like my husband, he'll do keto because he's like a carb addict. So he knows that. And he has, you know, for him, it's been one of those things. It's kind of like, uh, when people quit cigarettes, they say mm-hmm. that, um, you know, giving up cigarettes, it takes six or seven tries to give up cigarettes. So for him, it's been kind of that way with keto where he enjoys eating meat and vegetables mm-hmm. and his cholesterol has been great when he's been doing it. Um, so he knows how to do it the healthy way, but he, he knows that he has a problem with carbs and he yep. knows that, you know, every time he does keto, he's done it multiple times. And every time he does keto, he learns a little bit some more about it to, to be sustainable. Cause the, the goal isn't to be on a diet, lose weight, and then go back to eating. Like nothing happened. The goal is to learn something from that experience that you can carry on through the rest of your life. So the first thing he changed, like the first time he did keto, he stopped putting sugar in his coffee in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so he hasn't put sugar in his coffee in years. And so, but you know, like I said, he'll go back to the carbs and that sort of thing. So Yes. But now he's just getting better and better at like finding replacements like um, cauliflower rice or they have different rice or like now he's been on this like pea protein ramen mm-hmm. noodle kick because um, he loves like I said, he loves carbs. So he tries to find different products to kind of help emulate those carbs in the same way that yes. people who are vegan try to emulate meat. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought that up as well. Um, just a, a couple of points, um, just even going back to the idea of biofeedback um, and also habit and what becomes habitual. So right. after a while, like you said, you break that biofeedback loop. Oh, body says you're not listening to me. And then you get into, you know, it almost becomes compulsive in terms of eating. I've experienced personally experienced that as well, where, you know, um, it's like, literally like, I know that this is not going to make me feel good, but I literally feel a compulsion to try Mm -hmm. to eat something, even though I know it's not going to make me feel good, or perhaps the amount that I'm taking in of this particular thing, you know, and not having the moderation, you know, as one aspect is just really um, difficult. 
I, I live in the South. <laughs> I live in North Carolina. And the culture was definitely very different when I moved here in 2013 and started working as a family physician. It was definitely pretty shocking because a lot of people um, generally, you know, when we're dealing with, you know, blood pressure issues or diabetes, didn't have any awareness of how the food was affecting them. You know, so it's like, wait, sweet tea is bad. It, 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 it might be contributing. What? Diabetes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what? The sugar. Not give me the sugar. This tea is giving me the, the sugar. <laughs> I cannot drink, wait, what you mean I can't drink tea, you know, or, you know, wait a minute. So, oh, so, and, and I mean, where I worked was literally a rest stop off of a highway. I yeah. mean, so all of the food was there, all of the restaurants and what was happening, the residents were eating there on a regular basis. You know, you have one aspect of things and then you have good old country cooking, um, right. which involve a lot of, you know, vegetables um, and can be very healthy, but then it's about how you're preparing things, right. which you're adding to it. You know, how much oil is it fried, dyed and laid to the side? You know, right. that definitely also does, a, you know, take a lot of shifting for people as well, culturally, just depending on where you are in the nation. Right. And that's one of the things I've talked with my patients about to try to give them permission of like, mm -hmm. yeah, you live in the Midwest. If you look around, there's a lot of obesity here. So let's talk about how do you function in an environment like this? So obviously it would be great if the environment wasn't that way, but it's kind of like having some compassion and empathy of like, yeah, I understand it sucks and it's hard. Yes. I'm not going to say that it's easy. And I know for me, it's always kind of one of those things that people are like, well, you know, you're thin. What do you know about it? And I'm just like, number one, I've actually gained like 40 pounds since I got married from this wedding photo, you know? You can see behind me, Jamie. <laughs> I used to be 40 pounds lighter. Um, but honestly, when I was even that weight, I felt like I was too thin. So I wanted to gain a little bit of weight, you know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to gain like 20 pounds from that weight and be 20 pounds lighter than I am now. But it's one of those things for me, like I have struggled with my weight my whole life because mm -hmm. my father has diabetes and that's how he actually ended up getting diabetes was he was drinking like two liters, multiple two liters of Pepsi every day like people don't realize how much sugar is in a lot of those drinks yes and so it's kind of one of those things of like why do we why don't we say that like why is it not on the label of pepsi like may cause diabetes that sort of thing like it would be great if our environment gave us some of those clues as well mm -hmm. and if we learn nutrition in high school and so that's actually why i do teach nutrition in high school um it's after school unfortunately i do want to try to work on getting it during school and trying yes. to you know, develop a curriculum for all the high schools in cincinnati but i understand like it's one of those things of it's part of you know we talk about capitalism this whole corporal uh, corporate complex we deal with in america of like people are really trying to be subtle about getting you addicted to a lot of soft drinks and the mm -hmm. food the food is so addictive it the is. food is so addictive, like McDonald's, all these places, they, they, they literally have food scientists who work on how to make the food addictive. Yeah, people don't realize that. Yes. It, it, it's really, and it's really unfortunate. Um, and even with the, even down to the marketing of it. Yes. You know, it's making it look so good. And then you have a bite and you're like, this really is good. And you yes. don't realize why you want to keep going back to it. Right. One time we were doing an event in person and there was somebody who was actually a food scientist <laughs> who was there who was like, 
I mean, I can tell you right now that we definitely make the formula to make it addictive. Like, you know, and so, because people obviously would try to say that we're conspiracy theorists and all that sort of stuff, but any food right. scientist will tell you that that is their job. Like that yep. is literally what they get hired to do, chemical mm-hmm. engineers usually. Um, that's what they literally get hired to do is try to make the make it so that you want more of that food and to and to have you override that biofeedback process in your body. Absolutely. And, you know, of course, you have to think about the contributions from addiction. You know, addiction is not just about, you know, alcohol and substance abuse, you know, heroin, crack cocaine, you know, cannabis. It's it's about it's food. Addiction comes in a number of things. And I think people really don't focus as much on food addiction and how that happens. But at the same time, food addiction doesn't also speak to somebody's BMI. Right. It definitely doesn't because, you know, there can be people and that's the biggest thing for me. I think that one thing about the body neutral, you know, that term is that Mm -hmm. I diagnose thin people with diabetes as well. And they are often surprised. Like, how did I get diabetes? What are you eating? You know, there's plenty of people who are, are, you know, living in thin bodies Mm -hmm. or was considered thin bodies who Mm -hmm. also struggle with eating the right foods to feel well and to avoid diabetes and high blood pressure as well. So I think that we play so much of that, like we equate health so much with appearance that for some people it can be, you know, kind of negative if you're somebody who's Mm -hmm. overweight, but doing all the healthy things like myself, like I've gained, you know, 20 pounds, like I said, without trying to, Uh, Mm -hmm. I tried to gain the first 20, but the second 20, (laughs) I tried to gain, Um, but you know, so it's just part of like, Pretty much after I hit 35, I just like, you know, 20 pounds, here I come. And for me, you know, it's been kind of frustrating at times when I'm trying to lose weight. But mm-hmm. for me, I just feel like my body's functioning fine. Like I don't have any pain. Um, I run a marathon at this rate. Like before 2020, I was I was training for a marathon before the pandemic happened. And I got up to running like 14 miles with the same mm-hmm. body weight that I am now. So for a lot of people, I just try to say we want your body to be functioning and that your body can have dysfunction, whether you're thin people, thin people have back pain and joint pain and everything. Um, people who may gain it, but I know that for sure. Like when I was, after I just had my surgery, I couldn't walk for two months. Like I I shouldn't say I couldn't walk. I was basically on couch rest for two months because I tried, you know, I tried a month in to walk some and I started having bleeding. So I was like, all right, I got to sit down some more. So I sat down Mm -hmm. for another month. I wanted to heal. And I got to the point at work where I was just out of breath, like just walking around work and my weight hasn't changed, but my body did not feel functional. So I was like, all right, well, I got to start getting up early in the morning at five in the morning and start walking on my treadmill because it's winter, you know? (laughs) So usually (laughs) I would walk outside in the evening when I get off of work, but I'm like, it's winter, it's dark all the time anyway. So I'm going to get up early in the morning and walk on my treadmill for a mile. It it doesn't have anything to do with my weight. It has to do with feeling well, feeling functional. And that's what my husband says, like why he, why he kind of goes through these cycles of like, all right, I know I'm out of control with these cards again. I've gained weight. And he's, but he said a lot of it for him is like, he said, he knows when he needs to lose weight when he goes to bend over and tie his shoes and it's difficult. (laughs) Yes. Look, I, I get it. Look, I, I, I'm there with, um, yes, I'm there. I'm there with Dr. William. 
I will yeah. tell you, yeah, that's what I know. Like, you know, I have been, you know, around the same weight and I have no problems, you know, taking one leg and putting it over the other so I can tie my shoe or put my shoe on. And when I can no longer do that, or it feels like one leg goes up and the other one's like, yeah, it's not moving. Okay. All right. Time to go ahead and walk because just walking makes you feel so much better. And it truly is about the functionality. Totally right. agree. And that's, I've been doing that all of this month and I've been feeling a lot better. I can walk around without feeling short of breath. I've been, yeah. so the other thing about functionality is I hate lifting weights. And that's probably, you know, why my weight is higher than it was too. Cause lifting weights is actually a really good way to, to drop some pounds. That's what I tell my patients often who are trying to lose a little bit of weight or mm -hmm. who are even just trying to feel better yes. um, to do weights. And for me, like that functionality of like being able to like turn on faucets, open doors. Strength, uh, yes. <laughs> That's so, strength training, yes. I hate strength training so much, but I definitely <laughs> can tell a difference when I'm not. So I try to do it with yoga. I usually do it with curvy cardio. We do weights. We do a little bit of weights, but mm -hmm. we haven't been doing that lately. So I need to get back to some weights too, which is my least favorite. It's just so boring. So I just try to watch TV <laughs> when I'm doing some weights. <laughs> I love cardio. Cardio, put on some good music. Yes. Um, but my husband, he loves weights. So that's what he does. He does like two hours of circuit training and do the most. <laughs> like, I, he'd be like, don't you want to come train with me? I'd be like, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, walking is definitely my thing. I love, love, love walking. I have a 5K coming up at the end of February. Actually, uh, both because you um, and I have participated in the Las Vegas rock and roll races. That was one yes. half. I know it was not a great half for you. The weather was not yes. agreeable. And it was dark and it, <laughs> and was, it was cold. Well, yeah. yeah, it was dark. It was a little cooler that year that, that we did it. But I've done that race a couple of times and just running the strip at night is really cool. But yeah. I've done the 10K. I have done the half like Dr. Shomo. Um, but yeah. doing those races and even though I'm going to do the 5K because I actually signed up for the half this year, but was not ready. And my friend and I, she was going to sign up for the 10K. So we both dropped down to the 5K because we knew we weren't in the space that we would need to be to you know, <laughs> keep that distance um, no, yeah. safely and without injury. So we're yeah. just going to start with the 5k and work our way back up. But you know, really just even with that 5k, I'm not going to be running. Walking is just amazing. Walking has just done so much for me and really yeah. just even in terms of just reduction in stress, you know, yes. and the functionality piece. Like people don't think about that from that standpoint right. again. So, you know, you make an assumption when you look at someone about what their life is, how they got there, you know, you see someone who's obese, this is, you know, and just making all of these assumptions about that person without knowing anything about them because they possibly right. be happier than you, you know, on, on, on paper and labs, they could be healthier than you. But again, right. it's about that functionality and what's making a person happy. Right. And I, I will say for me, that's one of the things that you know, there's a lot of changes that my body went through being over 35, but some of it also had to do with my cancer journey and sometimes being on hormones and mm -hmm. sometimes being off of hormones. So it's just been a, a lot that my body has gone through the past four years since I've been dealing with cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the thing with me, like I, you know, like I said, I, I really would appreciate when people would ask people how they're doing and that sort of thing and not make it so much about their appearance. Exactly. That would be amazing if we would have a little bit of humanity and empathy for people to right. be able to do that instead of looking and saying, you know, um, there's always that, uh, you know, popular, you know, um, family stereotype. You see, you know, go to a family gathering, you haven't seen everybody in a while and they're like, 
oh, you can't wait. What you doing, girl? Like, oh, you right. can't wait. You know, that's the first thing that your family, you know, potentially can at least my family, you know, will. Uh, right. <laughs> a lot of families. I comment mean, that's on, little, you know, that's, it's your yeah. parents. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's one of those things of like, even if, like I said, even if people feel like they're being positive, like, oh, you lost weight. Like, you don't know, they could have cancer or anything going on. So you can't make assumptions. And the other thing is like when you're talking about people being overweight, being happy, the other big thing that you have to understand is not everybody has the same values as you. And Mm -hmm. so that's why for me, like I don't even bring up people's weight because I don't know what they're going through or how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, I will only bring it up. Generally, people bring it up to me, like asking me advice of how to lose weight. And so then, you know, it's more of a conversation of uh, talking about some things that could change in their eating, telling them about weightlifting. But for me as a geriatrician, I, you know, want to live a long life yes. and that is important to me, but that's not important to everybody. Mm-hmm. Not everybody wants to live a long life. So if somebody, you know, is okay with being a certain weight and they, you know, for, I think that for what, what people have to realize though, is that you can't be delusional about the fact that that might not that might not be the longest life because in a nursing right. home, like when I, when I was taking care of older adults, it was pretty rare to have obese people mm-hmm. in their seventies, eighties and nineties. Like, yeah. you know, let's, let's be real. Mm-hmm. It was, it was very, it's very rare that you see a lot of people in their seven, in their sixties, there's still quite a few, but a lot of them don't make it to the seventies. A lot of them don't make it to their eighties. A lot of them don't make it to their nineties. So right. you have to be, you know, cause Robert was talking about, you know, part of, Part of it is like people would just kind of give up because they've gotten so much bad advice. So that's why it's important mm-hmm. to go to somebody like an obesity specialist because we don't get mm-hmm. a lot of training in medical school about how to have these conversations with our patients. Right. Um, but I think that people just don't, people sometimes have a hard time accepting what that can mean for their life. Because he, my husband and I were having this conversation about how Ralphie May, the comedian, mm-hmm. was just like, you know, I tried to lose weight. It didn't work out for me. And, um, that's fine. I'll just stay fat. And then he ended up dying of pneumonia in his forties um, of pneumonia, you know, not a heart attack, not a stroke pneumonia, because like with COVID right now, having obesity is a risk factor it is. of dying for COVID. So I think that people, it's actually, a, it's a, it's a risk factor for cancer as well. So, yes, you know, it's one of those things of, you know, you don't want to body shame people. You don't want to bring it up all the time, but mm-hmm. you have to understand that People who are overweight, like I said, they want their bodies to function, but you also have to think about who you can go to to get help if you are feeling that your body isn't functioning, like trying to seek out professional help with obesity medicine and um, trying to work on it if it's something you want to work on. But I think for us as physicians, we have to also understand that not everybody values the same thing that we value as far as living forever, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Just, you know, sitting here thinking even about, um, you know, the rapper Big Pun, you know, being from the Bronx, you know, the rapper Big Pun, um, he was in his 20s and he Mm. did die of cardiac complications. Mm. Uh, And so, you know, it it really, um, you know, I think that really allowing patients to be able to direct and come to you and assess how they're feeling, that biofeedback. Um, you know, you know, just body awareness and saying, look, these are the things that I would like to change, not necessarily for appearance sake, but because I don't, 
I don't feel good, mm-hmm. whatever it may be and whoever the patient is. Um, and, you know, working through those things and talking to them about options to help them is most important and just being able to support them. But yeah, not focusing on, oh yeah, 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 you need to lose that value. You know, like right. you don't need to tell people who may already potentially have concern about that or been hearing this from other places you just want to encourage them to support them and there's this um term now that the medical students are often are saying a lot i don't know i feel like maybe just this month it's been a really big topic of conversation and the conversation the the term is shared decision making Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so that's what we learn a lot now as doctors from you know that's what they teach in medical school versus the older generation of doctors i feel like maybe we're more like like the doctor who worked at the health department before me, before I worked at the office, would literally walk into the room and tell people they were fat, pinch their arms and say they need to drink more water. <laughs> she was just like a grumpy grandma, wow. I felt like to me. <laughs> so, wow. so like, and I was like shocked and appalled when people told me this because we're just, we're like, we are taught completely different thing in medical school now, like that shared decision-making of, it being a conversation and a dialogue with your patients. Correct, correct. And that is, wow, that's, that's just way to, way to feel judged by the person <laughs> that you're trying to go to in order to get some support and help about an issue that you may be having. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Some, people, some people loved it because maybe it felt, made them feel like home. I don't know, but a lot of people did not love it and they were happy that she was gone and I was there because I tend to just be more... I don't know. A lot of people will tell me that I'm easy to talk to, but it's mostly because I don't, I'm not, I don't judge people. You know what I mean? It's one thing there can be conversations of like the spelling myths and information yeah. versus diff information mm-hmm. that can be a, you know, a dialogue and an education situation. But as far as like, if you can believe whatever you want to believe, you can have whatever values you want to have, because mm-hmm. that's one of the biggest things they teach us in geriatric medicine is that, and that's why I really like, even when I work with my younger patients, you really learn a lot about that shared decision-making in that fellowship because everybody is different and you really learn how to individualize treatments and goals and that sort of thing um, with all of your patients when you're doing a whole year of just practicing those conversations. Right, absolutely. And just being able to empower patients, you know, right. taking the opportunity to be able to do that. I feel like patients, you know, um, it's a part of what we are taught and that we try to do and how those conversations go can be different for different people. Right. And I'm sure that you get a lot of training like that in psychiatry as well. Yeah. You know, along the lines of motivational interviewing. Right. And we learn that. Yeah. We we learn that in family medicine as well, but I'm sure that it's different in psychiatry. Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually very much similar. So when I, okay. I learned about it at the first time I learned about it, actually, that's what made me interested in psychiatry in the first place in medical school. Um, my um, rotation was on addiction medicine, um, psychiatry. And mm-hmm. um, my first half was with one physician. And then I was with Dr. Antoine Duehi, who is like a guru mm-hmm. in motivational interviewing. And I had a fantastic time learning with him. And then as I, we got into residency, I started to see that that was the, the motivational interviewing was shifting from the addiction and so seeing where it was applied into family medicine and helping people move right. from those stages where they're pre-contemplative, you know, right. not forcing them, but right. say, hey, where are you on this? Okay. Right. And when they get into contemplating, this is what I want to do and change and then start to prepare and then actually moving on it um, right. and being able to see those things through is really, you know, really great. 
Yeah, I was talking with a uh, medical student yesterday about that, about how I actually have a really strong interest in psychiatry mm-hmm. and thought about being a psychiatrist. But then when I was in medical school, they talked about how being a psychiatrist is kind of dangerous. And I was like, well, <laughs> I don't know about all of that. So anyway, but I, I have a really strong interest in mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I really love about being a family doctor is we do get to try to figure out the right thing to say to somebody to connect mm-hmm. with them to mm-hmm. get them to change their behavior. Absolutely. And like I said, and so that's why a lot of times I will tell my patients about like, you know, I empathize with you. It is hard to live in the Midwest and we're surrounded by bad food, but what, are we, what can we do about it? Mm-hmm. What small changes can we make? That sort of thing. And just trying to, just trying to bridge that gap and partner with them by having to be a dialogue and not so much of that top-down discussion. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll ask you a question actually, you know, during, the pandemic, I know that you did a lot of in-person, um, but at any point you doing some of the telehealth and how do you feel that impacted some of those conversations with your patients? Um, I do some video and I do some um, phone conversations. I don't think that it's changed that much. I think that obviously that um, there are certain conversations that I don't like to have over the phone. Like Part of mm-hmm. doing what we do is, yeah, there's motivational interviewing where you try to gauge where people are, but then there are conversations that you have to have, like somebody gets you know admitted to the hospital for possible cirrhosis, but they're still drinking. Like right. you got to have this conversation of like you can't do that. And then also right now with the COVID, um, people who haven't been vaccinated, those are conversations that you know people may not want to have, but you have to have them as a primary care doctor. So I try not to have them over the phone as much. I prefer, I mean, if we could do a telehealth like video, it can be right. better. Right. Um, I, I still will though. I will have them over the phone. I will have them on video and I will have them in person. I was just going to say that I prefer not having them in person because they're not vaccinated. You know, <laughs> that's me at risk, but it's so crazy because like literally there was one week where Everybody was coming in for physicals and then none of them were vaccinated. And I'm like, you do know the number one wellness problem right now is COVID-19 and I'm going to talk to you about getting this vaccine and I'm going to be very direct right. because this is a crisis <laughs> and you're putting me at risk. Why did you come here today? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that it is good to have some of those conversations in, in person yeah. because I can, I can, I can do that. Like there's more sense of me being able to feel that yes. body language, that body, you know, language shift, the energy shift. Mm-hmm. And so I can feel it. I still kind of push through it because you got to have hard conversations sometimes. So I generally will still introduce the hard topics, right? The energy shift, acknowledge that. And mm-hmm. then say, okay, I'm done with my sermon. Exactly. What else exactly. are we going to talk about today? <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, you know, I do telehealth all the time to, you know, telepsychiatry. So yeah. and I'm seeing people, you know, in the hospitals and even from the standpoint of, you know, that body language really is everything being able to see, you know, and I give people a choice. Do you want to, you know, especially if they didn't know. Well, I had a one day out of patient, I didn't realize, you know, I said, hey, you know, your primary team wanted you to, you know, I'll speak because they, you know, see you have a history of you know, eating disorder and okay. All right. You know, and, and they were engaged. They talked to me through the interview and I gave them some feedback about some of the medications that they were on were actually restricting mm-hmm. um, their appetite yeah. and they had a known history 
of an eating disorder. And, um, you know, but the person I saw a little bit of an energy shift toward the end of the interview. And, you know, as soon as I got off the camera, you know, my on-site specialist um, who assists me said, oh yeah, she was really upset that, you know, that this would, that we did this. And I'm like, you know, we, we gave her the option to participate, right. but she was more so upset that we were having a particular discussion about, oh, you know, we're a little concerned about these medicines that you're on because it's contributing, it can potentially be contributing to your restriction pattern. So she'd also had a history of think of a possible gas, gastric bypass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were some concerns about just disordered patterns and behaviors and mm-hmm. why she was in the hospital that particular right. event. And really, you know, um, you know, it was just kind of the, the, you notice the shift at the end of the interview. So it's not all like, oh, the person doesn't want to see you. So they're not going to talk to you. Sometimes people just don't like what you may be offering, even though it is in their best interest. Right. Yeah. And that's why, like for me in those in-person conversations, I kind of get out of the way because Mm -hmm. the last two conversations I remember, you know, going really hardcore <laughs> I got it all out in the beginning. And then we had a really good conversation after that. And obviously if they wanted to walk out, they could have walked out. You know what I mean? Like the door is mm-hmm. there. But for me, I just started to get to the point, like I got to the point where I didn't want to talk about it anymore. But then I was just like, you know what? I can't not talk about it. Like this is my job. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We get so burned out on talking about it and people not listening. Yeah. Yeah. It's sometimes hard, but I'm just like, I got to figure out a way to convey what I'm trying to say so that people understand it. And even if I come off upset or whatever, I need to talk about this because I, you know, like this is my job. Like I have to do my best to try to get people at their wellness visits to Mm -hmm. get vaccines. So I have to push through. We got to push through. All right, done. You can leave if you want, or we can talk about something else. And everybody so far has chosen to stay. And, and I didn't, I didn't offer for them to leave. Uh, right. Like I said, I noticed energy shifts, still pushed through, then stopped, shifted my energy, mm-hmm. <laughs> which they, I'm mm-hmm. sure they noticed too. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, let's light it up. Um, and then was able to have a really good connection with them to the point, like we were, we were talking for like a good 30 minutes about all types of stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that, you know, just having some kind of strategy when you're having these difficult conversations can be mm-hmm. helpful for you and the patient. Mm-hmm. But I just know that sometimes you want to avoid the conversations, but right. it's important to have them. Right. Yeah. And I think also it communicates that you're you're trying to work with them. I, I remember being in family medicine and having very, being very frustrated, you know, looking at the schedule and going, oh, this person's coming in and, you know, they're coming in and they're having to take, and I'm trying to understand, I'm like, what is it? Right. Like, how can I help you? I'm trying, I'm here and I'm asking you, if you don't talk to me, you don't tell me what's going on in your life that's preventing you from being able to either take your medications or do some of the things to improve this con- particular condition, then, you know, it's going to make it very difficult for me to help you. So how can I help you? I am trying to help you. I want to know, you know, um, right. it's just, you know, I th- think people really, you know, value that you care. Um, right. You know, you are not just a cog in the wheel. I want you to be better. Um, right. I want to help you. You don't feel good. What can I do for you? you right. Um, and I think that people can really get a sense of a family doctor that feels that way because there's been plenty of times when I've been in a room and because people have noticed that I do care, 
they'll bring up stuff to me that they've never talked to anybody about. And they'll even yeah. tell me that they're like, I've never told anybody this, but exactly. let me tell you X, Y, Z. So I think that just developing that dialogue and that good yes. communication and, and just showing your concern. Mm-hmm. And even, like I said, even when you come off frustrated and tired, oh. you know, <laughs> that people can still sense that you, that you really do care and they can feel that love. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's part of what health is love is about is really trying to address hard things that are going on in your life and yes. just figuring out how to how to put that in the context of your own life and make your yes. make your life better you know mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely yes remember uh all y'all listening doctors <laughs> are all human we are human we get tired we also have pandemic fatigue we would like this to end but we try to do the things so that we can all get this you know get this um, done, get it moving along. You know, we're in a very precarious space right now. Um, so, you know, you know, people are tired. People are trying their best to try to take care of you. It's, it's really, it, it's tough. It's definitely a tough position to be in, um, but it's important, more important to make sure these patients are, you know, okay, they're supported. We're doing the best that we can for them. Right. And I think it's really important for people to try to pinpoint some of their own emotions as well, because you, you find so many people trying to use this as their punching bag. We've had a lot of our staff quit. Um, we've had a lot of our staff quit. And so for me, it's like that biofeedback that we've been talking about of just mental health check-ins as well. Of You know, I just cussed out somebody on the phone at my doctor's office. Maybe I should call and apologize because they didn't deserve that. You know, like we've getting, we've been getting a lot of, yeah, a lot of frustration people directing it at us and a lot of anger directed at us. And it's obviously, like I said, we're trying to come to work every day and take care of people. Um, But there's a lot of people who really need to, to check in with themselves um, and try to figure out how to get to that place where they can not feel so frustrated Mm -hmm. um, with whatever they're dealing with and try to work on whatever it is you got to do, you know, yoga, meditation, writing, journaling, like wow, yeah. that's what, that's what the original Help is Love book is all about. It's about right. coping, you know, <laughs> so, Absolutely. so figuring out how to cope better so that you don't take out your frustrations with other people. Well, and, and some people may not even know how to do that and what that looks like, especially if they are living, you know, with a number of like psychosocial stressors, right. living in a quote unquote toxic environment, um, you know, where they never learn to communicate these things, you know, or, you know, just how to recognize them. Family. Just how a to lot recognize people, those things. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. That's what I've dealt with a lot of my family is that a lot of people in my family really lack that insight and awareness. Mm-hmm of their own behaviors and their own mental health struggles. Mm. And it can make it really hard to deal with them. I I still try because I understand mental health, but it can be frustrating when people do try to make you their punching bag. So we deal with it at work. We deal with it at home. You know, we try to do the best we can with our, with our loved ones. Um, But I think that it would, it would be great if people could try to give themselves some of that feedback as well of, you know, this person is just trying to help me or they're concerned about me and I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have said that and apologize, you know? Yeah. I remember being in family medicine though. I'll tell you um, when I heard things like that would happen, I would, you know, reach out to the patient and say, Hey, what's going on. And I would acknowledge advise. I said, look, you know, um, it's not okay. You know? So sometimes right. you wouldn't get a person to get to that point, but just to say, look, I understand you're frustrated, but at the same time, I tell people this all the time, um, you know, go a lot of people are going through stuff, going through things, doesn't give you the permission to be a jerk. Mm-hmm. 
Right. <laughs> it just doesn't exactly. give you the permission that, you know, um, and I say that this is a, amongst all of us. I don't care right. who you are, um, how, you know, whatever position you have in life, it does not give you an excuse um, to just be angry, but yeah. it also doesn't mean that you don't deserve empathy and understanding as to why you're in that position and why you're feeling that way. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely yeah. tough. And I've done the same with patients as well. Like if the staff sent me things about that, I definitely would mm-hmm. have the office manager mm-hmm. reach out to them and let them know that yep. that wouldn't be tolerated and they would be dismissed from our practice, you know? Mm-hmm. So there, there is that piece, but the, yep. so that's, but at the same time, it's just one of those things of people making sure that they don't burn those bridges because often you can't get that moment back. And I don't want people to like, you know, obviously you're going to be frustrated at times. And I think that people, sometimes people don't understand the difference between like frustration and anger. Mm-hmm. and sometimes people you know are not necessarily angry like I said these conversations I have with patients I wasn't angry I was just frustrated with right. it and I tried to figure out a way to explain it in a way that they could understand it right right um, right but you know there's there's going to be times when things are heated you know what I mean there's mm-hmm. going to be times when there's heated debate and heated discussion yep because of what we're dealing with and just in life like you're going to be frustrated so there's a difference between that and like you know and just like name calling and disrespecting people's being just basically being disrespectful, you know what I mean? Yep. Like there's there's a way yep. to have a debate and a conversation, even mm-hmm. if it's heated in a respectful way, right? Um, without it being a screaming match, without it being disrespectful, and without it being threatening, you know? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally agreed. Yeah, and that's I mean those are a lot of conversations we have with our patients about you know their weight and all types of stuff, mm-hmm. and I just want people to try to figure out how to do that for themselves as well. I feel like a lot of people really have a lot of negative things they tell themselves and a lot of negative voices in their, in their head that are making them feel inadequate and often making them feel like they want to have a punching bag, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those, we call call them in psychiatry, the self-deprecating thoughts. Those, those things are telling you, you know, you're, you know, you're worthless. You won't amount to anything, you know, because of whatever, issue it may be or traumas that they may have experienced in their lives right and they have to figure out how to work through those without lashing out on people who are trying to help you and being concerned about you yes absolutely and that's the beauty I think of also just having a primary doctor having someone who knows you and who understands you who knows your history and just establishing with someone if you don't have that right exactly Mm -hmm. all right well I think that's a really great moment to to wrap up this conversation, thank you so much for coming, Dr. Evans. You know we could talk for like five more hours. So. Uh, correct. You, yeah, we know how we do. We know you know how we do. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. It was wonderful to be here, and yes. I appreciate you. And I'm so proud of you and this thank podcast you. and everything you've done with Health Is Love. It's amazing. Thank you. My Health is Love t-shirt represented. I know, today. we both are. And then, you know, obviously you're going to help write the next book, going to give me a passage. So I'm really excited Ooh. about that. I'm really excited yes. for the next book. So absolutely. Like, like I said, we're going to keep wrapping it up. <laughs> we can talk forever. But that's a, we can have a conversation about that another day too, once the book comes out. But Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Shomo. In the meantime, I want to wish everyone a great self-love Saturday. And I want you to always remember that loving yourself is an act of rebellion. Self-love Saturday, help live with love. Self-love Saturday, break in cycles, we rebels. Self-love Saturday, help live with love. Self-love Saturday, break in